If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Really excited to open up God's Word for you today. We are continuing our sermon series on the, uh, the five weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, and that series is called Why Church? We are looking to God's Word, uh, which is authoritative in our life, to answer that question. Why is it that the church exists? What's it for? Why did God design it? How are we to engage with it as people? And so, over the last couple weeks, two weeks ago, uh, we've been exploring this. Pastor Dave opened us up and said that the church is a place for us to build, and it's a place for us to apply. God is doing a work of building his church. He is saving souls. He is advancing his kingdom, and he invites us, through the grace of Jesus Christ, to join in on that work. The local church is a place for us to build and apply. It's a place for us to live out our new identities in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk some more about that this morning. But then last Sunday, Pastor Paul uh, showed us that in the church, God gives us leaders, pastors, and elders who are charged with care and oversight for our souls who minister to us in the Word of God and in prayer. And this week, we're going to take some time to consider the Sunday gathering, the Lord's Day gathering. Why is it that we come together? What is it that we do when we gather? Is there a biblical warrant for it? Is it just, are we free to do whatever we want when we gather? What is it that we do? And so we want to consider this morning from Colossians chapter 3, the priority of gathering, but also the act of gathering itself, the activity of gathering. Is it necessary? Is it important? Is it meaningful? Is it something we should prioritize and pursue in our lives? You know, it seems like every year there are more books coming out from the fringes of evangelicalism that are saying, you know, worship is not just what we do on Sunday. Worship is all of life. And of course, to that, we would say, yay and amen. Worship is the way that we uh, interact with our children and our friends, the way that we uh, steward our finances, the way that we live our lives. But, but they're taking it a step further and saying, well, the gathering's not necessary. Leadership isn't necessary. Institutional church isn't necessary. Can we agree with them? Are they right? Well, obviously, you won't be surprised to hear that my answer is no. We can't agree with them, and no, they're not right. And I hope that you're going to see why that's true as we walk through this text together. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, as I mentioned, and that really excites me. I love the book of Colossians. There is just some gospel dynamite in this book. I want to give you a little bit of background uh, on this book. This church was actually planted by a guy named Epaphras who was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he went back to Colossae and planted a church among uh, the mostly Greek people who lived there. And shortly after it was planted, a false teaching began to infiltrate the church at Colossae. There's, there's some nuance to it, but basically what you need to know in a nutshell was it was a, a false teaching that minimized the work of Christ and the deity and humanity of Christ. And it was a false teaching that, that was leading some people to, to adopt some Jewish mysticism. So they were saying, Okay, yes, Jesus, Jesus is, is what we want, and Jesus is good, but we also need to add to it the ceremonial law. There are other elements of, of Judaism that we need to add in in order to, to make this go. They, they, were, they were being led toward syncretism. And so obviously this is starting to chip away at their confidence in the gospel, that salvation is only found through Jesus Christ alone. And any time that happened in the first century world, it's like the bat signal went out and the Apostle Paul, he'd be like sitting at his writing desk, and all of a sudden he's like, hmm? Someone's undermining <laughs> the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the gospel. And so he breaks out his pen, and he writes a letter 
to this church. And he writes to encourage them and also to correct this strain of false teaching that's starting to infiltrate this church. And he spends the first two chapters, man, if we had more time, we would, we would look at this together. The first two chapters of Colossians are just fantastic. He extols the, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of, of his person and his work. He holds it up so that they might see Jesus as glorious. You don't need all of those other things when you have Jesus Christ. You know, throughout this week, I found myself just reading through the whole book of Colossians again and again and again. Maybe that's something that you might want to do this week in your devotional life, just working through this letter. I found it was just really encouraging to my soul. You might find the same thing. So that's the first two chapters of Colossians. And then in chapter 3, he takes a turn. And he says in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And he spends the rest of the letter walking out the implications of the sufficiency and person and work of Jesus. He's saying, here's who God is and here's what God has done. And now in light of that, here's how we live. Here's the claim that it makes on us. We have a new identity Here's how we walk this out. And what we're going to see in this text, by God's grace, is that when we are saved by Jesus Christ, we have union with him. And that union with him necessarily joins us to his bride, the church, which is his body on earth. So I want you to just sort of hang that in the back of your mind as we consider together Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. I want to invite you, if you're able, out of reverence for Jesus Christ, let's stand for the reading of his word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of God. Here, meaning in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks through Jesus Christ, the mediator that you have provided for us, the one who makes it possible for us to approach you. We don't approach you on the basis of our righteousness or our ability to fit all the puzzle pieces together or our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or dust ourselves off or clean ourselves up. We renounce all of that. We say with the Apostle Paul, those righteous deeds are like, we, we count them as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. We thank you that because of his work, we are found in him. And we have access to you. We can sit under your word and have you speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit 
through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves under your word this morning. We pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Midtown at the Midtown campus that you would do a similar work in them. God, we want our church to be characterized by a love for your word, a love for the gospel, and a love for the assembly. So do a great work in us as we consider your word together. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Please take your seats. There's something I desperately do not want to do today, and there's something that I desperately do want to do today. So let me lay those out for you right up front. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to load you down with shoulds and oughts. What we don't want to do in this time is pack up the car for a nice 40-minute guilt trip. That's not what we're here to do. Gathering as a church is not like eating your Brussels sprouts, or taking the trash out, or going down the list and checking off the boxes on your chore chart. And far be it for me to portray it in that way. Here's what I'm so jealous for us to see this morning. The glory and the worth and the beauty of the gospel are not just demonstrated in the salvation of an individual sinner, although they are displayed in a profound way. They're also displayed in a church community that gathers together as God's redeemed people, having been knitted together and linked together as the body of Christ to sit under his word and to exalt his name. The gospel is profoundly displayed by a church who gathers in accordance with the word of God. And I want you to see that in the text this morning. So our big idea, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Our big idea is the church gathers to picture and proclaim the gospel. The church gathers to picture and proclaim the gospel. Those are our two points. We gather to picture, we gather to proclaim. Let's look at point one. We gather to picture. I want to read verse 11 again because I love this verse. This is like a game changer of a verse. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's understand this. God has been at work since the beginning of time. You can go all the, back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God speaks to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make from you a great nation and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. God has been at work since that time redeeming a people for himself. Not, not just a person, but redeeming a people for himself. Reconciling them to himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And here's what this text is saying to us. In Jesus Christ, because of the work that he has done, the things that would divide us no longer divide us. We live in a world that is separated and segregated along all sorts of lines. We separate um, on lines of ethnicity, income bracket, socioeconomic status, political persuasion, football fandom, whatever it is, we, we separate on the basis of those things. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying to us in verse 11 of this text is that there is more power in the gospel to unite us than there is power in anything else to divide us. Did you get that? 
Let me say that again. There's more power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to unite us than there is power in anything else to divide us. And this is the reality that we picture when we come together. The church is a group of people who links arms together under the banner of Christ is all. Christ is, Christ is what matters to us. Christ is all that matters to us. And so in the church, standing next to each other, lifting their hands and singing, you have Democrat, Republican, black, white, wealthy, poor. The gospel unites us because Christ is all and in all. And this is the picture that's displayed to our own souls and to the watching world when the church comes together. We work for six days. We labor at school, in our jobs, in our communities. We fight through the cares and concerns of this life. But then on the Lord's day, on the Lord's day, we lay all that aside. We come together and we express our unity as a body. And we're reminded of who we are. Christ is all to us. And guys, understand this. That's the most important thing about you. That's the most important thing about you. Paul Tripp says it this way. I love this quote. Corporate worship, the gathering of the saints, is designed to defeat your identity amnesia and to remind you of the glory of who you are in Christ once again. Guys, who are we in Jesus Christ? 1 Peter 2 says it this way. You don't have to turn there. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are what? You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are. We say Christ is all. And we leave behind all of the other things that in a worldly sense would divide us so that we can gather together and picture the reconciling work that God has done through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So we gather to picture who we are in the gospel. But we also gather to picture how we are in the gospel. In verse 12, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he goes on through verse 15 and laying out what it means to be the people of God. Who we are determines how we are. Does that make sense? And we come together. This is all plural. This is addressed to the church. The church displays the reality of how we are so that we might picture the gospel to the world and to one another. And we do that by putting on the garments of the new self. In the verses previous to these verses, he says you have to put off what's earthly in you. You've got to put away sexual immorality. You've got to put away anger and malice and deceit. That's who you once were, but that's not who you are in Jesus Christ anymore. Here's who you are in Jesus Christ now. We walk in compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. We bear with one another. We forgive each other because Christ has forgiven us. We put on love. We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we manifest. We display the reality 
of the gospel in the way in which we live this new manner of life, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we do this because Christ is all. And that happens in a unique way when we gather. This may not be true for you. I might be the only person in the room for whom this is true. But I do most of my like repenting and seeking and extending forgiveness in my home. That's where most of that happens for me. But the, the place it happens like the second most is in the church on a Sunday. Have you ever, have you ever experienced this where we're, we're together, the gospel's being pictured as we gather as a family. I'm looking around, I'm seeing my brothers and sisters. We're singing these great truths. I'm sitting under the word of God. And so often, God's just so faithful to come near to me in that moment and, and, and reveal my sin to me. Reveal bitterness that I'm harboring towards someone or or where I'm walking in unforgiveness, or where I've sinned against someone. And in that moment, I'm reminded of, of who I am in Jesus Christ. I am I'm God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Christ is all to me, and Christ is all to that person too. And so I'm freed to pursue peace with them, to go and, and ask forgiveness. When it's asked of me, I'm able to freely offer it because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Gathering together positions us underneath ultimate reality, and we're reminded of what's most true about us, that Christ is all. This is the way that I, I disciple my children through conflict so often, right? So conflict comes up, I want to I remind them of what's ultimately true, because in that moment of great conflict where they're upset, they're fighting, they've lost sight of what's ultimate, right? So here's how the conversation typically goes. Why did you throat punch your sister? Well, she stole my toy. Okay, but, okay, let's remind him of what's true. Don't you love your sister more than you love that toy? Yes. <laughs> They're not feeling it, but they know it's the right answer. Don't we want to please Jesus? Don't we want to walk in love? Don't we want peace to rule in our home more than we want our sister to give us back the toy? Yes. It's the goal of parenting is not to just address behavior. This is not what Paul's doing. He's not saying, go be compassionate. He's saying, in light of what's ultimately true, you are freed to be compassionate. Do you understand the difference? Be who God has made you to be. Guys, we gather together so that there's a context for us to live life together so that we can exchange grace, we can transact in forgiveness, we can love and be patient and bear with one another. And guys, we, just like my children, we need to be reminded of what's ultimate. And so we gather together as a church to picture the gospel. That's our first point. But the gospel isn't just uh, something to be pictured and modeled. It is fundamentally a message to be proclaimed. So our second point is we gather to proclaim the gospel. And I want to spend some time talking about three primary ways in the church that we proclaim the gospel together in sermon, in song, and in sacrament. So let's talk about sermon first. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are a people of the book. We are a people whose lives are built on the foundation of the word of God. And ever since the beginning of the church, God has called his people to be devoted to the word of God. So we see this in Acts 
Chapter 2, verse 42, what was the early church doing from the first days? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. What did Paul say to the young pastor Timothy leading the church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13? He said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. We are called to be a people who are devoted to the Word of God so that the Word of Christ might dwell in us richly. That's a great word picture, isn't it? It's our desire that the Word of Christ would dwell in us, not, not anemically, not, not thinly or weakly, but richly. It would permeate our lives, that it would, would work its way into everything that we do. This is why we, we call you to the Word of God in every arena of your life. It's why we encourage you to read it on your own, to, to develop a devotional life where you're coming under daily the Word of God and engaging with Him in prayer. It's why we call you to join a fellowship group where you can unite and link arms with other believers and open up the Word and discuss the sermon together. It's why we, we train up leaders to teach Bible studies and, and open those up to you and provide avenues for you to be, to be trained in how to understand and apply God's Word to your life. But I want to say this. There's a unique blessing. As good as all those things are, and they are good, there's a unique blessing in the life of the believer when you gather together with God's people, with your spiritual family, you sit under the teaching of God's word from your pastor who loves you, who is charged with, with care and oversight of your soul alongside the, the other fellow elders of the church, who's who's poured out his heart in, in study and in prayer to bring a word to your life. Do you know why we do that? So the word of Christ might dwell in you richly. And that's a unique blessing to your life. We believe that's one of the primary ways that the word of Christ dwells in you richly. This is why we're committed to the type of preaching that we're committed to here at Four Oaks. What we do at Four Oaks is we practice biblical exposition which just means the point of the text is the point of the sermon. We're not bending the text to suit our desires. We're not using it as a jumping off point to rant about the things that, we're, that we really want to talk about. We want to come together under the authority of God's word, open it up, and let it speak to us. I want to say this as well. There's, there's different ways to do biblical exposition. The point of the text is the point of the sermon, whether you're looking at one verse or just a clause or a couple of verses, or whether you're looking at a large chunk of Scripture. We think both are valuable, both have a place in the life of the church, and that's why when we looked at the book of Philippians, there's four chapters in that book, but we spent 12 weeks working our way through that book a few months ago. When we looked at the book of Nehemiah, we went a little bit quicker because it's narrative. There's a passage of time, God's doing a work over time, and we wanted to move through that a little bit more quickly so you could get a sense of what was happening in that book as it progressed. So after Easter, we're going to spend just a few weeks, just about five weeks in the book of Job, but then come fall, we're going to really hunker down and set up shop in the book of Acts beginning in the fall, and that's going to be a really long series. But regardless of how we do it, the point is this. The point of the text is the point of the sermon. That's even true when we do topical preaching like we're doing today. It's our desire that the Word of God would speak to us, 
that it would dwell in us richly. Let me, let's think about this for a second too. If the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, and if one of the primary ways that the word of Christ does dwell in us richly is through preaching, it's through the Sunday gathering, how should we feel about the Sunday gathering? How should we see the Sunday gathering's role in our life? We should prioritize it. We should be zealous for it. We should see it as a gift, an opportunity, and a privilege for us as God's people. Let me give you kind of a silly illustration to, think about, to, to help you think about this for a second. Imagine the Bible wasn't your holy book. You had a different holy book. And this holy book said, let college football dwell in you richly. Some of you are like, is that holy book around? Could I, could I see that? Imagine that, that you really believed this and you really thought that human flourishing wasn't possible unless college football was dwelling in you richly. And so you wanted to be a faithful uh, proselyte disciple of, uh, uh, of, this, of, this, of this religion that you're following. And so you're, you're on ESPN.com all the time. You follow like the specialized blogs for, for college football. You're following your favorite teams. You're following the beat writer from your favorite team on Twitter you're prioritizing to get to the games. You're texting Steve Curry all week so that you can crash his tailgate and eat his hot dogs and then, and then move in and, 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 and check out the game. Amen? And now imagine this. Imagine someone came to you and said, hey, guess what? Exciting news. Starting next week, every Sunday, LaMarcus Joyner, starting quarterback, cornerback from the national champion, Florida State Seminoles, is going to lecture for 45 minutes on the in, like the inside scoop of college football. He's just going to tell you what it's all about. He's going to lay it out for you. He was a four-year starter. He was an All-American, captain of FSU's defense. He's going to go play in the NFL next year. And you get to come, and you just get to receive it. You get to gather up with all your, you know, seminal crazy buddies and come and listen to this guy speak. What do you think you'd say? Absolutely. This guy would be whoever. I don't want to look at who that was that said that. <laughs> You'd be there, right? You wouldn't say, well, I'm a big Florida State fan. College football is my thing. But I don't want to gather with a bunch of like-minded Seminole fans and hear Marcus Joyner speak. That's not for me. No, of course. Of course you'd be there. And let's, let's tease this out a little bit while we're talking about college football. If you're a college football fan, you scheme for it all week, don't you? You're thinking about what time kickoff is. You're, you're wanting to get into that tailgate. You're planning your entire weekend around when you can be there for the game to make sure you can take it in. Gosh, how much more should we prioritize gathering to sit under the word of God? Preached to us by our pastor who loves us. How much more should we prioritize that? We gather to proclaim the gospel, and it's our desire that through the sermon, the word of Christ would dwell in us richly for our joy and for our growth in godliness. So we gather to proclaim the gospel in sermon, but we also gather to proclaim the gospel in song. Verse 16 says that one of the ways in, that we have the word of Christ dwell in us richly is by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Scripture is clear that we are commanded to sing. 
to God and to one another. In the, the parallel passage to this, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing is not presented in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the psalms, and here in this text, as a suggestion or a good idea. It's a command. In fact, there are over 400 positive references to singing in the Bible and over 50 direct commands to sing. And the testimony of Scripture is very clear. If you're a Christian, that makes you a singer. And why is that? Why does God command us to sing? There's a lot of reasons we can talk about. I just want to lay out a few for you here. The first is that singing helps the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. You remember what you sing, don't you? Will I ever, ever forget the words to let it go? No, I won't. Do you know why? We've sang that song a hundred bazillion times in my house, and we're probably going to fire it up as soon as I get home this afternoon, because my kids are obsessed. So, and don't, and you laugh, but you know we could all stand and we could sing it right now if we wanted to, but we would never do that, all right? That's not who we are. Singing helps us remember. You don't forget what you sing. Martin Luther, who was the great a champion of, of congregational singing in the Reformation. Um, he, he, was, he was very big on it. Um, at the time in the Catholic Church, the people didn't sing. The Mass was in Latin, and there was a group of people who sang on behalf of the congregation. Luther said, no way, we're not going to do that. The people are going to sing. And one of Luther's opponents, his critics, said that his disciples were singing their way into his doctrines. I think that's a fascinating criticism because it's really tapped into something that's true. Luther's people were learning his doctrines by singing them, and we learn doctrine. The word of Christ dwells in us richly when we sing it. And so this morning, we sang our God. We sang that if our God is for us, what could stand against us? That's Romans 8. 31, that's proclaiming that rock-solid truth that we can place our feet on to our hearts. It's riding it on our hearts. And then a little bit later, we sang about the glory of the atonement of Jesus Christ. We said, we said, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's the word of Christ, and it dwells in us richly when we sing it. So we sing so that the word of Christ might dwell in us richly. We also sing at times just to preach to ourselves. You know, one of the things I'm most grateful for in the Psalms is that it's so clear we can come to God in whatever season of life we find ourselves, whatever circumstance we find ourselves, and there's a song for us there from the highest highs to the lowest lows. From the standing on the mountaintop with the wind blowing your hair back and you feel like Jesus is right next to you, God, you're so near, thank you, to being in the pit where God feels a million miles away. There's a song for you to sing. That's why at Four Oaks, we want to be very careful not to only sing the happy, clappy songs. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we come together and life's just hard, isn't it? Sometimes we need to sing through our suffering. And so we sing a song like, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I love singing that song. Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope 
relies. We sing as an act of protest against our idols, against sin, against suffering. You know, some of the most profound moments that I've ever been a part of in my life, some of the holiest moments I've gotten to witness has been when I've gotten to lead worship at funerals in this church. You know, I've gotten to watch parents say goodbye to their little babies. And it's an incredible thing to watch them sing as an act of defiance in the face of death with raised hands and tear-soaked cheeks, singing to God, crying out, I am undone, but God is enough for me. I am convinced that Christ is all, and not even death will take the song of the redeemed out of my mouth. It's profound. It's incredible, and it's beautiful. We sing to preach to ourselves. We also sing to express and deepen our joy and our confidence in Jesus Christ. You know, singing is a window into our souls. It reveals and it magnifies what we treasure the most. Singing connects the truth that we're believing and that we're engaging with the affections of our hearts like nothing So it's one thing to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. It's another thing to sing it out from the deepest place in who you are. And so the question for you as, as a Christian is not, did God give you a voice? The question is, did God give you a song? That's what Bob Coughlin says. I completely agree with that. The question is, what has captured your heart? I have a great quote here from Charles Spurgeon. He says, that which is down in the well will come up in the bucket. That which is in the heart is sure to come up to the mouth before long. You may try perhaps to repress your emotion, but if the Lord has really brought you up out of the horrible pit, your emotion will no longer altogether be repressed. You will feel as if, should you hold your peace, the very stones would begin to cry out. A rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. I love that. A rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. And here's my firm conviction, guys. Where you find Christians gathered and there is a singing problem, that's not fundamentally about the music or about style or about gifting. That's a problem with the glory of God. It's a problem with the glory of God. And we just need to see it. We need to understand that Jesus is strong to save, that Jesus has come. He has stood in our place. He has borne the judgment that our sin demanded for us. And he rose from the, from, uh, from the grave, defeating death, so that one day we know that we will rise with him. And we're going to have eternal life with God. We behold the glory of God, our hearts going to sing it. So for some of you guys, maybe this is just a point of application. Just pray this week, God, throw back the curtains on Jesus. I haven't been feeling it. It's been tough for me. Throw back the curtains on Jesus so that I can see him for just how glorious and how wonderful and how praiseworthy he truly is. I want to say something to the men of this church, my brothers. I love you guys. 
can I, just, can I just plead with you on this point? For the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your wife, for the sake of your children and your grandchildren, sing loud when we worship God in this gathering. Please do it. And again, it's not shoulds and oughts. Let, let's talk about this for a minute, okay? There's this weird thing that's happened in our culture. There's this false idea of, of masculinity that says singing is somehow girly or feminine. I completely reject that out of hand. Let's, let's look at this. Zephaniah 3.17. Singing is embedded in who we are because we bear the nature of a singing God. Look at what Zephaniah says to the people of Israel. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God is a singing God. And men, we bear the image of this singing God, and it's our joy to respond to him by singing. You know, my dad, my dad's here, and I've shared some of this, this before, but you know, I had, I had, I've honored my dad several times from up front. The scripture says to honor those whom honor is due. And uh, he taught me to love the word of God, to love the gospel, to love the church. But of all the things that he taught me that strengthened me and formed me in my faith, I don't know if any of them have had a more profound impact on me than his willingness to sing for joy to God when it comes time for the church to worship. Now, he'd be the first person to tell you that he doesn't have a beautiful voice. I'm sorry, Dad. You're there. It's true. I love you. And so from a human perspective, as a boy, to stand next to my dad maybe wasn't the greatest thing in the world, strictly from a human perspective. But from a spiritual perspective, man, my dad, every time we gathered with the church, he would sing like his life depended on it. You know why? Because it does. It does. Christ is your life. Christ is all. There's nothing more important about you than the fact that you've been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he invites you to enjoy him and to draw near to him and to delight in him as we celebrate these incredible truths together. We can start now, guys. True masculinity, we're going to redefine it now, is singing loud, great songs with full rich doctrine to Jesus. Amen? Can we start that now? Ladies, are you on board with that as a vision of masculinity? I think you are. I think you are. Guys, it's not whether or not you have a voice. It's whether or not you have a song. And God has given you the song of the redeemed to sing to your great redeemer in this life and for eternity in the life to come. You're not going to have a glory of God problem in glory, right? You're going to sing loud in glory. So let's start that now. Amen? Amen. Very quickly, we gather to proclaim the word in sacrament. I'm just going to say a couple words about this. Jesus gave the church two sacraments, two activities, symbols to walk in until he returns. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of these sacraments picture and proclaim the good news of the gospel. In baptism, we practice believer's baptism here at Four Oaks. A person goes down into the water and comes out. You'll often hear someone say, buried with him in his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. 
And it's a proclamation that I belong to Jesus and I identify myself publicly with his people. God's given that to us as the church to walk in it and to celebrate it. And the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus himself offers himself to us in the bread and the cup. It's a picture of his, of his divine self-giving, his, his laying down of his perfect life, his sacrifice of himself for us so that we can come and be strengthened and nourished and receive this incredible means of grace at the Lord's table. It's a means of grace. That doesn't mean it adds to our salvation. It means it's an opportunity for us to be strengthened and built up and edified by the grace of God. It's a gift that we receive with thanksgiving. In fact, in some traditions, they call this the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word eucharisto, which is translated as thanksgiving in verse 16 of this text. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of his death until he comes. That's what Jesus said. Let me close with this. Guys, do we want you to prioritize the Sunday gathering? Yes, we do but not out of shoulds and oughts. We want you to prioritize it because Jesus is here when the church gathers, and there's great power in it. The power in it is not in the great oratory of the preacher. It's not in the great music that the band makes. The power in our gatherings is that Jesus Christ is among us when we gather as his people. And I just want to ask you, do you experience this? Is that something that you're walking in right now? For many of you, you may be, and this has just been an encouragement to you, and you just want to keep walking. But I imagine there's some of you who are like, man, I'm just, I'm struggling. I'm not seeing it. Well, let me just offer you a couple of suggestions, application points to consider, a step that you can take in the weeks to come to try to deepen your experience of this in the gathering. Consider taking a step of preparation. Prepare your heart for the gathering. Set aside time on Saturday night to pray for Sunday. See Sunday morning as the first day of the week, not the last day of the weekend. Time to finish up your to-do list. Time to sleep in and catch up on the rest that you lost out on during the week. Prepare for the gathering. I know that, that sounds funny, but let's, let's think about this for a second. Guys, what do we do when we come together? We gather to picture and proclaim the gospel. Do you think Satan's okay with that? You think he's excited that that's going on? There's real opposition to the work of grace that God is seeking to do in our gatherings. Moms, you get this, right? Moms with little kids, is there a harder time in your week than Sunday morning between when your kids wake up and when you drop them off in their classrooms? It's almost like Satan is like occupied, he like pulled up his own chair at your breakfast table and he's like tickling and inciting and like stirring up conflict between your kids just to get you as distracted and frustrated and frazzled and angry as possible before you come to church. By the way, I shared that with my wife, who we have four kids, five and under, and she has to get them all ready for church by herself every week, and she laughed in my face. So I think that's a legit one. I think that's a legit one. Here's the point, guys. Satan doesn't like this. The world, the flesh, and the devil will oppose the work that God is doing here. So let's prepare the best way to prepare is just to pray. You know, you know the button on the top of your phone, on the top of your iPad, on the TV that actually makes the, like, the screen go blank, like powers it off? 
consider like exercising some dominion, powering down your devices at the end of the day on Saturday and just spend some time praying. Pray for the gathering. If you don't know what to pray, pray for your pastors who are preparing to lead you. Pray for the brothers and sisters in your fellowship group, the ones who are struggling in specific ways. Pray that God would have a word for them in our gatherings. Pray that God would do a great work in your soul. Maybe you want to just take a step of participation. First of all, guys, come. Be here. Prioritize gathering with God's people. Study shows that the average, for the average North American who self-identifies as a Christian, about two Sundays a month is all they're in church. We're quickly becoming a semi-churched people. And so we just want to, we just want to call you for your joy for your spiritual vitality and for your flourishing as who God's made you to be. Let's stand against that and prioritize the gathering. Come early. Get in your seat a couple minutes before the service starts and just pray. Ask God to meet you. Stay a little bit late. Look for someone to encourage. Look for someone that you can picture the gospel for after the service is over. Look for somebody to invite. Guys, we're gonna call you to invite someone to come and be a part of our Easter gathering. Look for someone who doesn't know the Lord, who isn't walking with the Lord, and say, hey, you know what? Jesus got out of the tomb, and he's got hope and new life that he holds out to us. I'd love for you to come, join me for church, and then let's talk about it. Participate, take a step of participation. Here's our heart for you. Our heart is that you would prize and prioritize the Sunday gathering because we get to, not we ought to or we should, we get to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day each week to picture and proclaim the gospel to ourselves and to the world. That's a gift that we get to unbox every Sunday and receive it in a fresh and life-giving way. And here's the promise. When the church gathers Jesus is here. He's present among us to do a work among us. And great things happen when Jesus gathers with his people.